Our gospel lesson for today is from Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written to the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make the path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized him by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the throng of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts, together in this room and in all places, be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock our Redeemer, our Emmanuel, and our Prince of Peace. Amen. This week marks the 65th anniversary of the day in December 1955 when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a city bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Parks was on her way home from work that evening, and when the bus filled up, the bus driver demanded that she get up so that a white male passenger could have her seat. But she refused to budge, and the police arrested her. Her act of resistance that day triggered a 381-day boycott of the bus system that was organized by the 26-year-old Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. But what you may not know is that nine months before Rosa Parks, there was Claudette Colvin, a 15-year-old girl who refused to give up her seat on the bus, too. At her segregated school, her class had been studying black leaders like Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. Claudette says, my head was just too full of black history and the oppression that we went through. It felt like Sojourner Truth was on one side pushing me down and Harriet Tubman was on the other and I could not get up. And 15-year-old Claudette Colvin was arrested and taken to jail that day. Before Claudette, there was also Sarah Keyes, who, in 1952, boarded a bus from Trenton, New Jersey, to her home in North Carolina, her first trip home since joining the military. Around midnight, the bus picked up some new passengers, and the bus driver told Keyes to get up and to give her seat to a white man. She refused. So she spent the entire night in a jail cell, 
with a mattress so dirty she said she was afraid to sit down on it. So she stood all night in her full uniform, including her one and a half inch heels. You see, there were others who prepared the way for Rosa Parks. There was Aurelia Browder, Viola White, Geneva Johnson, Katie Wingfield, Susie McDonald, Epsy Worthy, Mary Louise Smith Ware, and so many more names and faces and stories than we will likely ever even know about. As Professor Courtney Boggs writes, forerunners are often unseen figures and unsung heroes. Their backstories are unknown. The details of their lives are underimagined or undervalued. They garner minimal attention because they are forerunners. Those who plow the ground, destabilize the terrain, and make ready for the change that is to come. Every movement needs those who function as the advance team, she says. That is, those who prepare the way for something that is beyond the present state of affairs. But forerunners don't come from the center of society. They're not the star of the show, and society never treats them that way. Because more often than not, forerunners... They come from the margins. For instance, the summer after 15-year-old Claudette Colvin's arrest, she found herself shunned by parts of her community. She experienced several difficulties and soon became pregnant. And while Claudette started getting involved in the NAACP, civil rights leaders didn't want someone like her a pregnant teenage girl, to become the face of the movement, they didn't think anyone would take her seriously. Besides, her family didn't have a running toilet in their house. To this day, in an interview with the Washington Post, Claudette says they didn't want me because I didn't represent the middle class. They didn't want me involved because of where my family lived and what my parents' background was. Historian David Garrow says the reality of the movement was often young people, and often more than 50% women. But the images we most often see and the stories we most often hear are of men in suits. However, Claudette Colvin still remembers something her pastor said to her when he came with her mother to pay her bail and take her home from jail that day. Claudette, he said, I'm so proud of you. Everyone prays for freedom. We have been praying and praying, but you're different. You want the answer the next morning And Claudette, I think you've just brought the revolution to Montgomery, Alabama. In today's gospel reading in Mark, there is someone who is preparing the way for the revolution that is getting ready to take place. A man named John the Baptist. 
He's not the kind of man we expect to be at the beginning of Mark's gospel. He wears camel hair clothing tied around his waist with a leather belt, and he eats locust and wild honey from the fields. And he comes to us crying out, not from the center of the city, but from the margins of society, from the wilderness. As Caroline Lewis remarks, the opening of Mark's gospel reminds us of the decentering of God's news that is found on the edge of everything. God always goes beyond the boundaries of where we thought God was supposed to be. We find ourselves not in the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, but outside her city walls in the margins on the sidelines. The good news of God brings hope to those who find themselves in the peripheries of our world, but it also belongs there. So much so that if we continue reading in Mark verse 5, we find that all the people of Jerusalem are going out into the wilderness to discover what the fuss is all about. And something about what John is saying and doing out there in the wilderness is compelling and captivating to them because they are going to be baptized right there by the River Jordan. And it makes me wonder what voices are you and I listening to today? Are we paying attention to what God is saying and doing outside of where we are? on the margins, in the wilderness. Because maybe that's exactly where we need to be looking and listening and paying attention this Advent season to find hope for our weary world. Back in October, a handful of us from Highland marched with about 500 more from our community in a peaceful protest from Tyler Park downtown to Brianna Square. And one of the people leading our chants along that protest was a young man named Travis Nagdi. He had this big curly hair and a large megaphone. And I remember being so inspired by the energy and passion he brought all along our route that day. But Travis's name is now on one of the crosses outside of Highland that we will hammer into the ground this afternoon. He was shot and killed just two weeks ago on November 23rd, becoming one more of the heartbreaking homicides in our city in 2020. As I've been reading and learning more about Travis's story this week, it became so very clear to me that Travis Nagdi was a modern-day John the Baptist. But instead of camel hair clothing, he wore a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. And instead of a staff, he carried a megaphone. Travis is one of the forerunners in the revolution that is taking place in our city and our country. According to a November 23rd article in the Career Journal, after the Attorney General's announcement about the Breonna Taylor case, hope for many in our community felt out of reach. But a young man named Travis Nagdi clung to it. 
And as he looked into a crowd of protesters gathered at First Unitarian Church downtown that day, he began to speak. He told them that two months before this movement began, he was the closest he had ever been to committing suicide. But he came out to observe the protest happening downtown, and he was surprised. He said there was just so much beautiful interaction going on between people that it made me realize that what was going on out here was something different, and I wanted to be a part of it, and it gave me a reason to live. Soon, 21-year-old Travis became one of the key leaders of the movement. One of his mentors said, Travis is irreplaceable. Travis really believed he could help change systemic racism. If you ever needed to see hope in a young man, you could look at Travis and see it. He was a beacon of hope, him and his megaphone. When hope again feels distant, the Career Journal continues to read, some are clinging to it now in Travis Nagdi's name. One person notes, I hope he will become a symbol of this violence and that we'll finally say this stops with Travis. We're finally going to put some attention on this thing and we're going to wrap a movement around it and we are going to be serious about what is going on in our city. This afternoon at 3 p.m. we will hammer now over 140 crosses into our lawn in memory of all those who have lost, been lost to homicides in our city this year. And perhaps all of these crosses on our lawn are voices crying out to us from the wilderness that is 2020, crying out for us to wake up, to repent, to change, and preparing the way for the revolution that is to come. But with so much wrong and with so many crosses on our lawn, a devastating record number this year, when hope feels so very distant, where do we go from here? That is, after all, the question we are asking ourselves this Advent season. Where can we find hope for our weary world? A few years ago, after the horrific shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in December of 2012, Rachel Held Evans asked the same question. And she wrote these powerful words that I return to every Advent, but I find them to be especially significant this year. She says those little Advent candles sure have a lot of darkness to overcome this year. I see them glowing from church windows and on TV, in homes and at midnight vigils. Their stubborn flames represent the divine promise that even the smallest light can chase away the shadows lurking in our world. That even in the darkest places, God can't be kept out. It's a hard promise to believe today, I know. And although my doubt and anger make it hard for me to believe today, I will keep lighting my Advent candles like a fool until they help me in my unbelief. 
May their flames be a reminder to all of us, she says, that we don't have to know why God let this happen, to know that God was still there and here and in those swaddling clothes and on that cross and in the grave and on the throne, for no amount of darkness can overcome the light. If I can go off script for a moment, I would love to share with those of you virtually what it feels like in here this morning. Because I think as we watched the virtual choir, there was not a dry eye in this room. And I began using my mask as Kleenex because that was my only option in this moment. (laughs) But it's a reminder that even in this season of separation and isolation, Even in this season of an empty sanctuary, when we so long to be together for this Sunday of Advent, I think the virtual choir reminded us that God can't be kept out of this space. And so Kathy and Austin, thank you for the tireless hours. And choir, thank you for the tireless hours you put into that to remind us of that today. Friends, may we remember when the world feels so dark and weary to look for those stubborn little Advent lights. You know, something I've never thought of before working on this sermon is that the Advent candles are actually placed alongside the edges of our Advent wreaths. They're not in the center, they're on the margins. And yet each of those outer candles is a beacon of hope, lighting our way forward for the hope that is to come. In the same way, I believe that Claudette Colvin was a light, and Sarah Keyes was a light. Travis Negdi was a light, and Brianna Taylor was a light. This morning, our choir was a light, each of them reminding us to be bold and to be brave with the lights that are within us that we might progressively light the way for the hope that is to come. And so may we cling to that stubborn hope that comes to us from the margins of our Advent reads. May we listen for the voices of hope that come to us from the margins of society. And together, friends, may we hold on to the promise that no amount of darkness can ever, ever, ever overcome the light. Thanks be to God. Amen.